Anya, I have a question for you. Ask, ask away. <laughs> were you one of those kids who was really into ponies? Were you a like a pony girl growing up? I feel like a lot of people would expect that I would have been into ponies or horses, stuff like that, simply because I'm from Oklahoma. And I think people still have this image of Oklahoma where we don't have cars or electricity and we're just riding around in <laughs> buggies and horses, that that's our mode. You mean of you're not? <laughs> no. Ford F-150, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I liked horses growing up. Like I loved when we went horseback riding on vacation. My sister was really into horseback riding, but I never, I didn't connect with horses the way like some young kids do. Like there was this, I guess, this stereotype of like certain little girls who just all they wanted was a pony, all they wanted was a horse. And again, I loved horses, but I was always a little, actually a little afraid of them, intimidated by them because they're so massive, they're so big, they're so strong and like a little, um, I, I guess, unpredictable. So that was I uh, did. I did though. I went, to, I went to summer camp. I went to Bible school summer camp. That was hosted Shocking. by hosted by a <laughs> mega church called Guts Church, and we rode horses one day. And I remember when I got on the horse, I did that thing like you know, where you see in the westerns, right? And you lean back, and the horse kind of oh no, on legs. no no. And I did a little <laughs> and I surprisingly did not fall off. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So oh, I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> well, the reason I asked this is because I it's my turn to introduce an animal topic to you. You've done such a great job Thank over you. the last few weeks with that. So let's see how I do. But today I thought it would be fun to talk about the Kentucky Derby because it's coming up on Saturday, May 6th. Yeah. And like, this is coming from a place of, I don't really care about the Kentucky Derby. I think the only thing that ever resonated with me about the Kentucky Derby is the mint juleps, which I find to be delightful. But in prepping for this conversation, I did a bunch of research and I'm excited to share it with you. There are some surprising things about this weird horse race. Well, tell me all about it. Well, first off, do you know what the Kentucky Derby is? Because if you do not, it is a horse race held annually in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's also known as the Run for the Roses race, because at the very end of the competition, the winning horse gets a, a blanket of roses you know, draped over it. Um, well, I, of course I knew what the Kentucky Derby was. I mean, I'm not that sheltered of a human being. I did not know. <laughs> about its other name yep it's and got another name every i know everything else though so i don't even know why we're even doing this episode because i i know everything julia yeah yeah okay <laughs> how long how long does the race last for oh oh man how long does it last for like how long does is does the winner so not the television event but like how long from start to finish does the kentucky derby 
go for? I mean, I, I, of course, this is going to vary, but like on average, what's the time frame we're looking at? I would say it's probably around like five minutes for the race, which seems long, but I feel like horses it's... would be able to run that long. <laughs> <laughs> it's longer than me. Um, wrong. So the Kentucky Derby lasts about two minutes. That's so it. the horses, yeah, that's it. So the horses run around in a loop. That's one and a quarter miles. It's insane how much attention is on this uh, like very, very quick event. I think it's the shortest competitive sporting event in the world. Um, is so it I, yeah, I was surprised I mean, too. Is that true though? With like, if we're talking about like track and field with how short some of those uh, competitions are in track and field. Fair, fair. But this is Are we probably about animal competition. <laughs> <laughs> I would animal say any. That, okay, that's a great, great question. I mean, I'm assuming that most people are not running faster than a horse over a one mile distance, but obviously there are track competitions that are not a mile long. So, um, good question. I will come back to that later. But it's um, yeah. I, I mean, I was surprised by how short it is, and again, just given like all the media coverage, it's a huge you know, in-person spectacle. And it's also, believe it or not, it's the oldest continuously held major sporting event in the United States. So it actually was started in 1875 after some wealthy uh, Kentuckians traveled over to England. They saw the horse racing culture over there. They were inspired by it. They went back to Kentucky. I think this was 1872 and they raised money to start the Louisville Jockey Club. And they created a racing facility outside of the city and started holding you know, different um, competitive races there. The first live broadcast of the Kentucky Derby happened in 1925, and that was a radio broadcast. So it aired on a local station in Chicago. And then the first televised uh, coverage of the Kentucky Derby happened in 1952. So it's, it's been around for a while. I'm imagining, you know, you know, pre-television and they're, they're uh, announcing the race, right? And they're, I, I just imagine the old timey radio voice. Oh no, we've got her, her going around the track. Look at those <laughs> no, look at him. Look at him just rough and tumble around those, that track and the dirt's kicking up. <laughs> That's what they sound like, right? One hundred percent, what they sound like. In fact, I'm thinking we should probably have you apply to be one of the commentators next year because that was that was really exceptional, Anya. Beautifully done. Thank you, thank you. Well, May third, when they had their first national television coverage of this, I feel. I mean, that makes me feel special because May third is my birthday. That's right. Okay. So maybe there's this like special Kentucky Derby pony connection that's like actually buried somewhere deep inside of you, just waiting to break through the gate and come out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that? I guess like, what was the reception like in terms of people that attended these events? Um, was it something that people were really excited to go-to from the get-go? Did it take them a while to get people to start attending? Yeah, like, that's a great question. A big thing? Yeah, yeah. I think the commercial success really 
took off once it started appearing on television. You know, it was always a celebrated local event. You know, it became a gambling event as well, especially once it was broadcast on radio. But once it got to television and more people became aware of it, then that's when you had a lot more people attend on site. And so today, I think you'll have over 100,000 people will attend the live event and the TV ratings are in the the double digit millions. If you can believe that again for like a two minute event. What about the fashion? What When did the fashion become such a big part of the Derby? Like I imagine in the 20s and 30s, right? That, I mean, this is a very elitist event, I feel like already probably. And you're having the the who's who I'm, I'm guessing going to these, but when did the big hats and the dresses and the pastels start coming into play? To be honest, I think it was there for as long as women were attending these events, because keep in mind that a lot of the tradition around the Kentucky Derby, the inspiration came from horse racing in England, which had that sort of culture of elitist pageantry and that it, it carried over to the horse racing community in the United States. So I, I like, I definitely, my research did not put a date on when that fashion came out, but I think it was always there. And then of course, once, you know, television, you know, became more accessible to more people, I feel like just the spectacle of it got amped up even more, but you're right. Like when people think of the Kentucky Derby, even if you know very little about it, other than the horses, you know, other than the Southern commentators, the big thing that people will think about is just the attendees, like the fashion, the style, the pastel dresses, the big hats, uh, the seersucker linen suits that the people, the attendees have basically become a big part of the event. And I don't know many other sporting events where the, the audience is as much a part of the, the experience as it is with the Kentucky Derby. So I'm on the Kentucky Derby website right now, and they have a little write-up of 148 years of Kentucky Derby fashion. So this was published in uh, February 2019. And I am looking at some of these dresses that these women wore. And I have to say, I actually think that... uh, fashion of what I've seen, you know, in recent years at the Kentucky Derby has devolved because what these women <laughs> wore, it like, it's, I, I, I'm sorry, but this just, this just knocks anything that I've seen in modern day fashion at Kentucky Derby out of the park. I don't know. I sent you the link right now, but you see these women, they, they look like they're in like full gowns. They're, they have this beautiful draping around them. They have trains on their dresses. The One of the pictures of some of these women, they're carrying little umbrellas with them, I'm assuming because it's hot. So they're protecting themselves from the sun. But also they have these gigant, gigantic hats where I they look as big as an umbrella. So I don't know why you would need an <laughs> umbrella to protect yourself from the heat at all, because I feel like the hat should serve the purpose of, of doing that. Um, But what this is saying is that the hat signified a certain societal status. Um, So at the time, like that was basically, you know, if you're wearing a big fucking hat, (laughs) 
<laughs> you were a fancy lady. If you are wearing a spaceship of a hat uh, at the Kentucky Derby, you're probably really rich. I mean, you would have to be very rich to go to the Kentucky Derby because even though, as I said, we'll have over 100,000 people will attend the event live, but there are two seating areas. And so most of those people are going to be in the general admission, which has like very limited visibility into the actual race. A lot of people are watching on a jumbotron, which is kind of odd. And then the people who have the best seats in the house are in very, very expensive boxes along the raceway. And those are going to be your millionaires, your multimillionaires, your horse owners, you know, basically really the, I'll say the top tier of horse enthusiasts will be in those box seats. I mean, it's like any sporting event now at this point, right? I mean, the pricing for sporting events has just skyrocketed. And I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, I don't like sitting in box seats. I have before. I think it's so boring because I find the people that are sitting in these box seats are boring. Uh, I want to be with the uh, with the regular people where we can scream and shout and get drunk and bump into each other. And if they spill beer on me, I won't care. Because to me, that is the spirit of being at a sporting event is being able to get a little rowdy right and also, with you. i don't want their stupid hats blocking my view <laughs> i'm totally with you in my experiences you know, being in box seating areas across different sports games i feel like it takes me out of the experience whereas when you're sitting there surrounded by everybody else like you feel very much in the moment and there's something about being in the boxed area where i just don't feel as connected even to the game that's happening so Mm -hmm. um, you know, not, not for us. We'd be with the hoi ploy drinking mint juleps and our, uh, pastel outfits. But, you know, for a lot of the people who have a serious, um, interest in the outcome of these games, namely the horse owners, that's, you know, they're going to be in prime seating. And speaking of the horse owners, you know, I mentioned that the Kentucky Derby has obviously been a commercial success for the media. You know, so for the rights holders who get to broadcast the game and everything. But I, I did not understand how much of a commercial opportunity horse racing is for the people who are involved in breeding horses, owning horses, licensing, you know, the rights for the horses to race. It is, it is an enormous commercial opportunity. So the first time that the purse money, so like the winning money for the horses hit 1 million was in 1996, and then it doubled to 2 million in 2005. So the races for the winner are increasingly you know, worth something. $2 million is obviously a lot of money, but believe it or not, there's a ton of money to get made on, well, sort of call the, the horse leading up to the race, but also the horse after the race is quite valuable. And I can use like a pretty good example of this. And I think it sort of illustrates the life of a racing horse as well. So did you ever hear the name American Pharaoh? It has come, it's, it's there, but you need to tell me more. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, so he won the Kentucky Derby in 2015. He's, I would say like one of the more 
uh, recognizable horse names in the States right now. And his life began at a breeding stable. So a lot of, of the horses who were racing in these top tier races, like the Kentucky Derby, they were bred from legacy championship horses, often where both parents were competitive racers or had qualities that would make them desirable for breeding racehorses. So American Pharaoh's dad was a champion. His mom was also a racehorse. And she was purchased for $250,000 for breeding. So that's just Which like- at the time, like at the time, that's like with inflation. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. What does that equate to today's money? Totally. So, I mean, already that's a significant sum. And once a horse, you know, it's bored, if it's considered that it might be suitable for the racing uh, industry, it will move from a breeder stable to what's basically like a talent agency that will both help develop it as a racehorse, but it will also, you know, represent it at sales auctions. So you're going from the farm that you're born. Now you're going to this other farm where you're starting to get a little bit of horse training. You've got your talent agent, you know, which is a little crazy. And in American Pharaoh's case, he was born on Zayat Stables. Then he moved to the Taylor made farm, the Taylor made sales agency. And then after that, he was sold for $300,000. I have to stop you real quick. Taylor Made is also a golf club company. Are they connected? I don't think so. But I had the same question when I was reading this. I felt like there had to be some sort of like IP infringement going on here. <laughs> And I think the horse stable's been along, been around for longer than the golf clubs, but we'll let somebody else pick that battle. <laughs> so he was but sold. Yeah, so he was sold. He was sold for $300,000. And he was actually bought back by his original owner, which was a little unusual. So, you know, he went up for auction and then his original owner bought him back. And so after he was purchased again, he went to a training school for young horses in Florida, where he went on to spend time with a very successful and very problematic horse race personality named Bob Baffert. And we'll talk a little bit more about him later. So American Pharaoh, he goes into Bob Baffert's training school. And after that initial training, the horses begin competing. And so American Pharaoh started some early races, was successful, and then eventually he started winning enough of them that he qualified for the larger U.S. races, including the Kentucky Derby. Now, how many races? How many races do they have to race or place in in order to qualify for the Derby? I actually don't know what the the qualifying process looks like. So, okay, here, here's what I found. Uh, a globally inclusive event, and by inclusive, inclusive for the ultra-rich, uh, if you have enough money to get a horse <laughs> and train it. Uh, the Kentucky Derby opens the road to both Europe and Japan via a series of seven qualifying races in Europe and a series of four qualifying races in Japan. Uh, the highest point earner, of each road is extended an invitation to the Kentucky Derby. So that sounds like for the more global uh, side of things. 
And then another tidbit says that horses must be nominated to the Triple Crown and then qualify for the Kentucky Derby through a series of races that award points to the top four finishers. Okay, so they have to enter a certain amount of races and then place in the top four within those races that they compete in. So it's, it's like a ranking system. Yeah. Okay. You can't just be and like, that's... I have a really cool horse. <laughs> Let me <laughs> enter it. <laughs> no, you, you actually do need to hit certain milestones that I do know. And, you know, it's, it can be a really tough life for them. I mean, in American Ferraro's case, you know, he was very successful, celebrated, and he was one of the, I'll say, lucky racehorses that got to have a nice retirement. Most of them don't. But in American Pharaoh's case, you know, he, he continued to, he has continued to be a financial um, resource for his owners because once a horse moves into retirement, you can use breeding rights as another way to make money off of them. And okay. in, yeah, so they're, again, even when they're done racing, there's still value to them. Like, you know, American Pharaoh's dad was a former racehorse, and so now he's being used sort of the same way that his dad was. And in 2015, the New York Times reported that the Zayat stables had sold American Pharaoh's breeding rights to this, you know, stud farm in Ireland for, apparently it exceeded $20 million. So the breeding rights are worth even more than the purse money from some of these races. Oh my God. That is yeah. crazy. Isn't that nuts? And his first crop of foals sold well in November, 2017, including one horse that was bought for $1 million. So are people strictly buying these horses in the, I guess, in the vein that they are going to race them? Or do you think they're also just buying them to be like, I have a horse from the bloodline of American Pharaoh. I'm sure there are people who do that. Like they're not going to race their horses, but maybe they're horse obsessives and they're super rich so they can afford to do that. But for the most part, these horses are being bought for the racing market. Okay. And as I said, you know, not, not all horse race horses have such a happy retirement. I mean, American Pharaoh, he was super lucky. Like he gets to live in these posh stables with great food. And really his only job is to hang out and hang out with the lady horses as well. And you know, that's what the rest of uh, his life looks like. But a lot of horses that don't have top racing status, you know, they're often put down or sold cheaply to what I would say are largely neglectful and abusive owners. And the number of racehorses that end up in horse rescues in the U.S. is testament to the vast number of animals that are put into these situations. And so it's it's very sad. And I think what's even sadder is that many racehorses don't even make it to retirement. Just the, you know, with athletes, with human athletes, you know, the strain of racing, it can take a toll on your body. And then you add in performance-enhancing drugs, you know, mistakes that are made in the breeding process, abusive stables. You have a lot of horses that die on race training or sometimes during the races themselves. You know, they're dying of heart attacks. They're getting leg injuries that, you know, are extremely complicated. In some cases, they're put down immediately after. 
I just looked up a stat and it said um, in 2019 at this at Santa Anita, 42 horses died on the track at one at one track. 42 horses. Yeah, that's crazy to me. And I mean, I you, you think about too about them just euthanizing them and putting them down. I I'm wondering, and I this is just my guess, but I also think I'm probably right, is that these people who own these horses, right, are really rich. So it's not like they don't have the resources to nurse these horses back to health, just even if they're not going to race again, right, where they could live just a normal horse life. And, and, and because they're no use to them anymore in terms of being able to race them, it just sounds like they just discard them and toss them to the side as a result of them not being useful to them anymore. Exactly. I mean, think about greyhound dogs as well, you know, all of the abuse surrounding them. Like anytime you have you know, animals that are being used in competition, there's going to be a tremendous amount of abuse behind that as well, unfortunately. And you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned the Santa Anita racetrack because that brings us back to Bob Baffert. Ooh, Bobby. So, yeah, Bob Baffert. I mean, Bob. it sounds like a villain's name, like Bob Baffert. Yeah, it just sounds like a bastard. No, 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 no. He's, um, for those who don't know, he's an American racehorse trainer who, as I mentioned, he trained American Pharaoh. He trained a number of you know, triple crown winning horses. So like horses that have won multiple race, uh, races, including you know, the Kentucky Derbies, the Preakness Stakes, the Belmont Stakes, the Kentucky Oaks, all of these, again, very high profile races. In his recent career, over 30 horses that he trained have failed drug tests. And even though he's been fined for drugging these horses, the amount of money that he's made in his career, it's estimated to be over 300 million, is a drop in the bucket compared to paying out, you know, 20K and a fine here and there. Like it doesn't, it really does not do any real damage to him. He doesn't care. And as I said, there are like a lot of not great people in horse racing and they don't care either because they just want you know, their, their horses to win. And so people are happy to work with him in spite of his you know, shady practices. What's and, interesting to me is that, you know, they have these, I I'm familiar with his story and how his, the spirit Medina won the Kentucky Derby a couple of years ago. And he was disqualified because it was found that he was doped up. And Bob said that it was an ointment, not an injection. That was, that was his reasoning is why that particular drug was found in this horse's system. But despite all the drugging up that they have done on these horses, the fastest race a horse has won is Secretariat at a minute 59.4 seconds. And that was in 1973. And still no, no yes. amount of jacked up thoroughbred horses have been able to beat that time yet. I love that you, you found that, like, to me, that was just so, like, so great to see because some of this, the horse's ability, 
Bill, you give as many drugs as you want. It's not going to do anything. Some of them are just going to be better at this than others. And what's sad is the horse that you you referenced, um, Medina Spirit, Medina Spirit, I should know how to um, say that correctly. Anyway, that horse died of a heart attack after a workout in Santa Anita Park in December 2021. And apparently prior to that horse dying, Baffert had been under scrutiny for having seven horses die in his stables in Hollywood Park. And then some more you know, investigation was done into his background. And some journalists have alleged that since 2000, at least 74 other horses have died in his stables. The fact that someone with that type of track record is still able to get so much business because one, obviously he is a successful horse trainer, right? And has been able to, I guess, get a lot of them over the finish line. <laughs> uh, but I just can't imagine like putting my animal in someone's care with that track record of that many horses being injured or dying under their care, no matter how many wins they had. And that to me just kind of shows like, I know the Kentucky Derby is a really big event and really exciting and there's a lot of prestige around it and everything, but I think it kind of makes me wonder, is it, is it worth it? And how much do these people actually connect with the horses that they're purchasing, right? On like an emotional level versus just viewing them as an object that's going to make them money. Like, I just don't see that there's, I, I can't imagine that there's a real emotional connection that they have to these animals that they've spent so much money on. Right. It's, it's a business transaction for a lot of these people. And, you know, it raises questions where there are fun aspects to the Kentucky Derby. It's like a giant pastel tailgate. There are fun themed drinks. The horses have crazy names like Go for Chin, Foolish Pleasure, Northern Dancer, Lucky Debonair. You know, there's this, there's so much tradition around the games, but it also raises a question, is this ethical? Is it ethical for the animals? And is it also ethical for some of the jockeys and the stable caretakers who are involved too? You know, there's also been documented abuse of people who are caring for the horses in the stable, a lot of undocumented workers. Uh, jockeys who are not always properly compensated for the work that they're doing. And one thing that you'll notice is you start to do some research into who these jockeys are is, and maybe unsurprisingly, there have not been a lot of women who have been participating in this industry. I imagine, um, yes, and actually I... I did a little research on this. So Diane Crump was the first woman to race in the Kentucky Derby in 1970. Um, and she was a very accomplished jockey uh, during her time. And there was a, a guy who owned a bunch, of, a, a bunch of horses and he's the one that got her to race in it because he really believed in her. Um, but I... It doesn't surprise me that this industry was also very sexist in a lot of ways and really kept women out. And it was actually against the rules for women to race when I looked this up and they had to go to court to change the rules and get it overturned so that women could apply to be jockeys. So insane. Oh my God. 
Yeah. yeah, there's like an old boys culture to this sport, as there are with a lot of sports in the U.S., but just because of the the history and the location of the Kentucky Derby, it's like old money, old Southern boys. And it's not surprising that women were largely excluded from this, apart from the hats. So ethics aside, let, let's say Kentucky Derby was... There's nothing wrong. Everything is on the up and up. All the horses are living their best lives ever. And we were to race a horse. What would the name of your horse be if you were to, if they were to race in the Kentucky Derby? Oh, that's a good one. I want you to think about this. What would my horse's name be? Maybe something like my middle name's Ren. It's like a loud, angry bird. So maybe it'd be like Squawking Ren or like Chubby Ren or something. <laughs> something yeah, give them a name that makes it seem like they can't win. So then <laughs> they just shock you. Uh, I think my horse's name would be Stargazer. Uh, Aww. because I feel like Ruthie's like me, my dog. I feel like if I had another animal, like a horse, they'd also be easily distracted and they'd be like, Ooh, they would just be looking at this. They'd be distracted by the hats and the sand. <laughs> <laughs> they would get the record for taking the longest to, uh, <laughs> <race>. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like your horse would be named something like uh, Happy Green Grass. <laughs> greeny, greeny. Greeny, exactly. Just a thought, just a thought. But yeah, look, if the Derby was verged less into animal abuse, like I might have more enthusiasm for it. Again, like the names are fun. It's a spectator sport, but at the same time, I just don't feel like you really learn anything about the horses from this. Like, it's just two minutes, place your bet. It, I find it hard to develop a connection with them as yeah. a spectator, but I'm also not really a horse person, so maybe that's happening as well. What would you wear to the Kentucky Derby? I already know you have hats. I've seen your hats. What would I wear? I would probably wear, probably wear like a white white sundress or maybe my white linen lady suit some like <laughs> bright bright shoes <laughs> i think i would go for the old school what these women were wearing in like the late 1800s <laughs> that we would bring, we need to bring we need to bring that back the corsets the bustiers like let's just bring it all back <laughs> i can absolutely see you doing that and just so perfectly looking the part so that's uh yeah something to consider for next year maybe we'll go on you maybe we'll get you all dressed up and you can be my date in your lady linen Done. suit uh julia fantastic job on on uh educating us on the kentucky derby and to our listeners thank you for tuning in uh, follow us on Instagram, on Twitter at The Furfluencers. Go to our website at thefurfluencers.com to sign up for our newsletter. And like and subscribe. Give us a rating so we pop up in people's feeds more often. And as always, thank you for joining us. 